Maybe I'll take your copy of God's Word and turn in it to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 26. Begin reading in verse 19, just to back up a little bit in the last week's passage a little bit, and then uh, go to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 26, verses 19 through 32. I'll be reading out the New King James Version. I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. God's Word declares, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer and that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad. Most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this saying was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This morning we have an opportunity to consider not just our presentation of God's Word that we have been doing so through the agent of Paul and looking at his examples, but we have also have an opportunity to see the responsiveness of the loss to our message and how um, those responses uh, need to be understood and then considered and uh, related within our message. And we are going to see two very different responses from the two primary recipients of Paul's testimony here in his final trial that we have record of in the book of Acts. And uh, these really hold um, not... uh, necessarily the two opposite extremes of response. Certainly one is trying to discount the message, and the other one is seriously considering the message. And yet both uh, leave this day in a state of unbelief. And as far as we know, persist in that, um, we have no alternative record saying that they made any confession of faith we would love to impose that or or, or impress that upon the text uh, by uh, King Agrippa's response but there is no further evidence of it and we leave that certainly in the Lord's hands uh, 
but uh, we want to look at Paul's engagement with Festus and King Agrippa and uh, consider our place in our relationships with those that we are seeking to confront with the gospel message and realizing that um, we are going to be facing these similar responses and we need to have a similar course of thought uh, to continue to persist in confronting them with the need to decide. And that's really what we want to work on today, of not just leaving this off as just information we have transferred from our knowledge bank to theirs, but rather that this requires a decision. And we're going to look at uh, the rationale behind some of that this morning. Before I do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to gather in your name and for each one here. And, and Lord, we commit this time to you and pray you might work in it mightily. To your honor, praise, and glory. And we pray that you might uh, just be pleased to have your spirit direct and uh, the communication of your word, that it might be in accordance with your word of truth and, and uh, applicable, as always, to uh, our lives, that we might recognize that uh, and understand and, and be willing to and ready to apply those to our lives. Lord, we do pray that you might guard this time, as always. For it is certain that our will, our intellect, our ideas, philosophies, and the culture we have been raised in influence us, sometimes more so than your word and your spirit. And and for this we ask uh, your protection, that you might uh, cleanse us of those, that we might uh, know your word and acknowledge it as truth and serve you according to your instructions. And Lord, we do pray that as we engage our world, that you might give us wisdom. And as you have spoken, that we would be harmless as doves, but yet wise as serpents. And Lord, give us that insight this morning. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul has delivered his defense uh, really without any of his accusers present. This is at the request of really King Agrippa, but the calling by Festus uh, to please King Agrippa to hear the whole message and from the source. And so King Agrippa doesn't want to hear about it. He wants to hear it from the mouth of the man being accused. Uh, his real interest isn't so much in the case of Paul as in that which has uh, produced the case. That is, this issue that was confronting the Jewish community that has been confronting it for 25, 30 years, and that is, what about this man Jesus? Is he the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one of the Old Testament? And, uh, and the persisting uh, and undeniable almost at this point uh, statement that he has risen from the dead. And all the fascination that comes in with the idea of someone being able to conquer death and to not be able to be held by it. And again, I will remind you, I know it's been every week, that there are still those walking um, in this hour of the writing of this scripture that had seen him, spoken with him, eaten with him in his resurrected life. And so this is a very real facet of what King Agrippa has been, um, I'm sure, wrestling with and certainly interested in uh, among his people. Uh, and even certainly with his wife as well, as the frequency of Bernice's name coming up in the text 
indicates that hers was very much a, a great interest in what was going on here. And so let's consider it the end of the passage. We have two responses. In verse 24, Festus, uh, having Paul having really concluded and summarized uh, the events of his uh, conversion uh, and his following after Christ and the obedient walk that he has had, um, then Festus's response is a jovial one, really, if you look at it. Um, and you would almost expect this kind of thing out of uh, a politician of his form, um, to take a serious matter and make it lighthearted to some degree. Uh, it says, and his response is, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. And uh, this is a response that we get, and, and you will get. And I see it regularly. Um, and it's couched sometimes in uh, uh, more critical statements, uh, but it's always given in kind of a joking format of really, um, you Christians are just kind of nutty. And that's really what his conclusion is. You're nuts. Uh, I see it. I see uh, responses to serious posts by Christians uh, in, in different media settings and blogs of uh, people talking about, oh, your, your little imaginary friend when they're talking about God, and they'll refer to him as your imaginary friend that you talk to, uh, that you still have. Um, they'll talk about your book of fairy tales, and when they were referencing the Bible, and they try to make a lighthearted response, but it's really a jab, and we all know it, and it's a declaration of their state of mind towards the entire issue. Um, that they are antagonistic to it, and rather than simply uh, spewing out the real bitterness that's in their heart, they, they want to give these quote-unquote light-hearted jabs. But I want you to recognize what Festus is saying. He is saying that this man is nuts. He's crazy. He's going mad. Um, this guy has an insanity defense in this court, uh, as far as Festus is concerned. Now remember, this is a man who is overwhelmingly uneducated. He is ignorant, really, of the issue at hand. And my contention is that most people who are responding in this vein are largely ignorant of what they're talking about. This man, out of his ignorance, first time he's heard it, um, uh, that's just ludicrous. Who believes that? And many times when we first encounter with genuine Christianity, this will be a response that we will receive, is you've got to be kidding. There are still people that believe in that kind of stuff in this day and age, whether they are considering themselves uh, too rational, too scientific to believe in this. And, just, and usually what that means is they haven't really studied the science that is out there. And really given consideration to it. And Paul's response is, needs to uh, be a directive, really, I think, for our response to this kind of, of a tactic used by those who want to disregard the message of Christ. Paul's response is to, first of all, say, uh, I'm not out of my mind. I'm of my right mind. And this is a serious matter that you're trying to make a joking matter, but I'm in my right mind, so your accusation that somehow uh, rational, thoughtful, intelligent people don't believe this stuff is just error because 
Um, there are many, many, many rational, intelligent people who do fully believe this and have committed their entire life to this. And so I'm not mad. Pick up the books. Read the books. Uh, oh, wait, you haven't read any of those books, have you? Of the New or Old Testament and of the testimony of those men. You haven't read the books of those followers of Jesus Christ, of the way uh, and their writings over the centuries that has persisted not only in the realm of intelligent men or of the masses, but also in the realm of intelligent men. And so uh, you go back and they're ignorant of the fact that many of the advances of science were made by men who were fulfilling what God calls the work of kings, is to search out the matters of God. And they were doing that work, and you look at the writings of Sir Isaac Newton and others, and we, and we recognize that they were all doing this not to their own interests and pursuits and vanity, but rather to the glorification of God. And we, and we look at, at, at musicians and their writing to the glory of God in their, in their very uh, well-thought-out and mathematically sound music. And my daughter is learning the connection between music and math and how strongly it's there. Um, but we find that um, largely these people's response is, is an ignorant one. It's showing that they are really exposing the fact that they have not researched this well. They're often parroting uh, others who claim to be great thinkers and made similar claims. And, and, and I think we've all encountered this response. We're going to make light of you, we're going to make fun of you, and we're not really going to investigate what this is all about. And this is the condition of Festus. He really wasn't ready in his mind to really seriously investigate the matter. I mean, he he had the opportunity, I mean, part of the region that he had governance over was Jerusalem. uh, And we know what happened in Jerusalem 25 years earlier. Um, This Jesus, I mean, Pilate was someone he would have known about. Um, he would have known about Herod. He, he had contact with these individuals. He had opportunity to investigate it. He could have easily done the research and interviewed some of the very people who saw Jesus alive and well. He could have certainly interviewed Roman individuals who were there when on the cross the sky grew dark, when Christ became sin for man. He could have certainly taken and afforded himself every opportunity to investigate it fully and done honest uh, investigation, honest, uh, thoughtful uh, engagement with this this truth. But he was going to discount it offhand without fully thinking of it because he really didn't want to consider that because there are other motives involved here. This isn't an honest search for truth, and this is what Paul addresses him with. You're not honestly searching for truth. You just want to discount this because um, once this, if this is true, you don't like the ramifications of it, what it holds for you, not only in terms of your personal life, but also in the administration of your responsibilities here as a representative of the Roman government over the realm of Judea. And so he wants to first recognize the seriousness of this matter, that I'm not an insane person. I've not gone out of my mind. I'm not mad. Um, I I am a rational 
person, willing to engage you in conversation, and I can uh, relate this in many ways using scriptures and, and, and other information. In fact, we have seen some brilliance in that regard uh, in Athens. We have our text in Athens where he's engaging people for the first time with this and is able to confront them by the avenue of their <laughs> plural deities uh, and, and to address the fact that none of them really are gods and you all really know it in your heart of hearts. And, just be, and so you've made this statuous for the unknown god. So he has already confronted the intelligent, thoughtful, the most intelligent people considered in the Roman Empire, the philosophers, and done so with some effect, both positively and negatively. But again, it wasn't a matter of, are you smart enough to be a Christian? Are you smart enough to avoid falling into Christianity? That wasn't the issue. The real issue is, are you ready to investigate it honestly, first of all? And Festus isn't ready to do that. And I want you to notice the brevity with which Paul deals with Festus before quickly moving on to King Agrippa. He doesn't ignore Festus and just say, I'm not mad, you don't want to hear it. No, he doesn't, he doesn't completely ignore him, but he does have a very brief statement to confront him with this. He says, no, I'm not mad. He goes on and says, most noble Festus, but... Speak the words of truth and reason. Now, you and I pick those up and say, well, you know, they're truth and reason, you know, they're important. Um, because, um, frankly, we have lost track of truth and reason in our society. Uh, we are now following the will of masses of people who are largely ignorant. And we believe that truth is determined by polls and uh, uh, of the masses, um, which is not where truth comes from. But truth and reason to a Roman are some of the highest and most noble virtues that they extolled. And when someone gets forward, comes forward and says, no, I am presenting you aspects of truth and aspects of reason to the Roman audience that is there, it is a recognition that these are some of the highest callings of Romans is to investigate and discover and search out truth and reason. And I will contend with you that we have a lot of Festuses among us who are making light of God's word because they are not interested really in truth nor reason. Because they have modeled their entire ethic, their entire philosophy around their own interests, around themselves as the only authority that matters, and therefore truth, which doesn't change. It is, it is a solid, immovable thing. It is, you break on it, it doesn't break in front of you. You have to break yourself over truth, because truth doesn't change. And reason, that whole engagement of our mental faculties to work beyond our biases and our own interests, our, our fleshly longings, and then having to confront this, now I have to work through this, and that's, well, it's work. 
And it's not something I want to engage in because the end result might require some radical things from my life if those things are true. And so Paul's confronting this almost entirely entirely Roman audience with some of the very highest virtues in Roman culture. And that is truth and reason. And sadly, I find that um, we live in a society that is becoming vacated of truth and reason. And the fact is, our Christianity is defensible. And everywhere Christianity has gone historically, um, incredible things have happened. Education has risen in value to the point that um, historically if you look through where education blossomed it was where missionaries went and all of a sudden the literacy rate of the society just boom skyrockets that most of the languages that have been put into uh, an alphabet and, and writing were the result of missionary activity of the gospel one of the first things put into that language in writing often is a book of the New Testament, of the Bible. I don't know about you, but I don't think that really is something I would expect from a ridiculous, thoughtless, fairy tale oriented religion. that wants to reap its harvest from the ignorant. Rather, we want men to have the Word of God in their own language, that they might study it, that they might consider their ways, that they might engage their intellect, their reason, to work through its truth that there is a holy God, that there is a creator of all that exists, that the evidence is plentiful around us, that because of his existence, that there is a standard that is higher than any that we can attain to, and therefore we are in this miserable condition of being enemies of the one who made us and an affront to him and need deliverance. And that deliverance can't be in ourselves. And hence, we must rely upon another. All of this is very reasonable and defensible. And Paul is prepared to do that. But on this occasion, there's a visitor that won't be there necessarily for very long. And that's King Agrippa. And so while he is ringed out two words that every Roman in the Colosseum would have understood as being very precious and valuable of truth and reason, he is pressed to move on. But we aren't. Because most of the people you're living with and around are in the category of Festus. It is a rare thing, and it's a pleasurable thing when you encounter someone who is willing to study, consider, weigh, uh, work through the idea of our faith and 
the scriptures, not just a cursory reading of it. I'm, I'm in, always interested by myself. Oh, I've read the Bible, and uh, it. I said, really, you, you, and they make that claim, and then I uh, begin to press them a little bit, and and um, that doesn't make them students of the Bible at all, does it? There are very different ways of reading things. And a cursory reading of the Bible may not be of value to one who is simply reading it to say they can read, they have read it. Rather, an honest consideration of its truth and the reasoning behind it and the, and the sheer uh, sensibleness of our faith. We have re- often and repeatedly stated before you that our faith is not rational. It is above rational. It is super rational, not unrational, not irrational. It is not uh, undefensible. It is, is not foolhardy. But rather, it does require a faith which all of us possess, and all the people you're going to encounter, including this Festus, all possess the capacity to believe in that which they have not seen, nor touched, nor tasted, nor heard. They have the capacity to do that. Uh, all men have it, and Festus being one. So when Paul confronts him with this statement, that I want you, I'm simply asking, inviting you, and I'm speaking to you words of truth and of reason. These aren't fanciful tales. These aren't silly stories. These aren't historically unreliable. Um, And again, we encounter that extensively, that, oh, this and this, you can't prove that, you can't prove that. Um, What they never seem to say is they can't prove they're not either. And they always ignore what can be proven. They always ignore the evidence that every archaeologist that's worth their weight um, in the Middle East acknowledges freely and openly is that um, I need this book to navigate around the Holy Lands. They never want to talk about the accuracy of those texts. And so we, we come to them and we invite them by simply asking them, are you interested in being an honest student of truth and reason? And carefully consider it. And when there is no interest in that, then we are done. Because if there's no interest in seeking out truth and reason, then there is little more that can be really said They will simply continue to minimize. They'll continue to to, uh, make uh, levity of it. They'll they'll simply discount it. The invitation that Paul is making to Festus is when you say you're a Roman of Romans. Roman virtues are of truth and reason. Now why don't you lay hold of those virtues and really get busy and study this out. Now remember, Festus by his own mouth has said he knows absolutely nothing about this. In a state of ignorance, he is incapable, really, of making 
a judgment on Paul's case. And so he is, to some degree, relying on, uh, to a lot, great degree, relying on King Agrippa's expertise in this matter and, uh, and is ready and willing to hear what Agrippa has to say. But his disinterest in investigating. Now remember, this isn't just um, happened. This isn't, he has heard the accusation um, there in Jerusalem. He traveled to Caesarea. He had the initial accusation before Paul, where Paul defended himself, had to appeal to Caesar to avoid that. And uh, then waited, it says, some days for King Agrippa and Bernice to come, and again, Festus still hasn't educated himself on the issue at hand. He is the worst of all judges. And so Paul simply calls him, when you're ready to listen and consider, is this true and reasonable, then you are ready to have the gospel declared to you more carefully. Now, he turns to the other. Verse 26, still technically speaking to Festus about King Agrippa, who is there, says, For the king, before whom I also speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. And right away, Paul (laughs) is calling, if you will, to witness to the rationality and to the reality of Christ and the claim of Paul here, he is going to call forward, um, unwillingly, by the way, for the witness, he's calling forward a witness who is sitting right beside Festus. And that witness is King Agrippa. He is calling him forward and saying, King Agrippa, you know a little bit about this. None of this got by you over the last 20-some years. You have been studying this out. You and your wife have been careful students. You are well aware of the way and of this one Jesus of Nazareth. Um, And the indication that Paul makes here is that that King Agrippa has has some knowledge about this. This is not passed by him as, as just some peripheral thing down there in Jerusalem, but rather something he has carefully considered, carefully researched, that he has done the legwork, if you will, and he does know this person, Jesus, about whom so much has occurred and around whom so much has happened within his realm. And so Paul's statement to Festus is, if you want to have a counter voice, and you don't want to rely on me, then why don't you consider these others? And essentially, that's what I take a lot of people who want to make fun of it. And I say, so you're also making fun of all these other men, all these other giants, intellectually, historically, who all believed in God and believed in Jesus Christ as their Savior and gave not just lip service to them, but full service to him and him alone, who wrote hymns over him as well as study the science that God created. So you're calling all those intellectual pygmies and fools and idiots. And we call them into the courtroom. 
and we call their testimony in. Now, Agrippa isn't really a, a, a full believer, but he is a searcher. He is, a, a, he is seeking to discover, and he can at least give some credence to what Paul is saying. He is at least giving some evidence that, yes, this isn't just this one whacked out guy. This is real. This has been going on for years, for, for over 20 years. It goes all the way back into the prophets thousands of years ago. Um, and yes, the prophets did say that this one would come. He would suffer, Isaiah 53 and other passages, the Psalms, other, many others, all the way back really to the Garden of Eden. He would suffer cruelly. He would raise from the dead and conquer sin and death forever. And, uh, and he's named for us in the scriptures, um, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Agrippa knew all of this. And so he becomes kind of the, the first wave of evidence that Paul's going to put to, to uh, silence the foolhardiness, the funness by which Festus wants to mishandle Paul's testimony. It says, the man sitting right beside you doesn't think it's mad. The guy sitting right beside you, King Agrippa, doesn't think it's a worthless effort to study. The guy sitting right beside you is weighing this out. He has information. This one, whom you respect and know and is holding a pretty high position in your government as well, he wanted to hear this for himself from me. He's giving some audience here. So even though you don't know me and think I'm crazy and you won't research it out to find out the facts, at least you could just recognize that King Agrippa is extraordinarily interested in hearing this and has many of the facts and is studying this out. And that's essentially what I've called people to when they, oh, you're one of those guys that preaches fairy tales and when they find out I'm a pastor and, and uh, oh, that you are um, putting out crutches for weak-minded and weak-willed people to live by uh, and other demeaning statements that they make of our faith, our profession, of Christ. And I call them, I said, well, if you mean this person and this person and this person historically, um, then uh, as weak-willed and weak-minded people, oh, oh, no, uh, no, if all followers of Jesus Christ have to be weak-willed and weak-minded and just weak crutch-needers by your definition, then let's go through history and find a few of them. You see, the fact is, is that they haven't studied it. And they haven't even looked around at their neighbors who have studied it. And I love using some of the old scientists because they speak openly and pointedly about the fact that this is God's created order. 
And it is to God's glory that they studied and worked and discovered. And we name principles after men who themselves would never have named the principle after anyone but God. Look at your neighbor who is doing the work that you refuse to do because of your own interests. So now we turn to King Agrippa and having talked about him in his presence, which is kind of an interesting ploy by Paul, and recognize that this is a public thing. Paul's not isolated. This isn't a one one offer. This is a a uh, genuine article that is that is going to persist. And we have uh, since this time we have over nineteen hundred years of persistence of this truth and reason and evidence. And he turns to King Agrippa in verse 27. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? A direct question. Now, he hasn't called Festus to this question. Festus is just being introduced to it and has shown that he isn't ready, nor is he really willing to investigate the matter honestly with his intellect and reason. (laughs) And so all we can do is say, when you're ready to investigate truth and reason outside of the parameters of your own selfish interests, and when you're ready to investigate things that your neighbors are already investigating with honesty and integrity, um, then we can talk. And so I don't really have anything to confront you with Um, because you're going to make light and be jovial about the whole matter, um, because you're just not ready to deal with the seriousness of what I'm talking about. But King Agrippa, when I come to you, I have a direct question. Do you believe? Now, you and I might have a problem with the the prophets. Do you believe in Jesus is what we would say. Um, But Paul wants to start where his message always started in the synagogues, um, and where he talks about here that God tells him, I'm going to take the Moses and the prophets, I'm going to start with them, and I'm going to teach Christ. And so guess where he starts with King Agrippa? Let's just start with the prophets. you believe those guys? And Paul says, you don't even have to answer it. Whether by reputation or by revelation, Paul already knows the answer. And that answer is, I know you do. So here's a king who believes the Old Testament. He believes the writing of the people, and Bernice apparently joins him in that, uh, of the the people of Israel. And so what this has given Paul now is a scripture. What has it just given him? He's given him truth. Now they have a shared common truth that they can now talk about, that they can discuss, they can debate over even if they wanted to, but at least now they have a foundation that isn't shared with Festus. Festus hasn't investigated this, hasn't even looked into who this Jesus was, or he just, some guy raised from the dead. 
Hasn't looked at it at all. Little hearsay that he's heard here and there, but he's not bothered with it. But now Agrippa, uh, we already have the prophets established. And so Paul has the scriptures. And he has, and, and he brings Agrippa back to the scriptures and says, You believe the prophets. I know you do. You believe the prophets. And, and that's all it takes. All it takes is for Paul to bring Agrippa to the prophets and say, You believe the prophets. So you know that there had to be a Messiah. You know that he had to suffer. You know that he was going to provide salvation for his people. You know all these things the prophets taught. You know that it was supposed to happen in Bethlehem. You know, you know that he was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Um, you know the prophets. You believe them. And, and, the, and the fact is that he has studied them. He has believed sufficient. He has studied sufficiently to know that what the prophets declared... Christ Jesus accomplished. He has already believed the prophets. He has studied out Jesus. And now it is simply a matter of, isn't it time for you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Jesus is the Christ. So this question, do you believe the prophets, and its answer that Paul gives, I know you do believe, puts upon King Agrippa now a dilemma. Are you ready in a very public place? Isn't that great? You know, if we want to confront people with their belief system, we usually want to say, well, I'll talk to you about this in private. Uh Uh-uh. This is in the Colosseum. King Agrippa, in front of a host of the most important people in Caesarea, with Festus there, is confronted with this question. You believe the prophets, so why don't you believe the fulfillment of the prophets? Wow. Wow. And King Agrippa, it hits him right between the eyes. Well, there anyone else is up on it and recognizing what's going on, Agrippa recognizes it immediately. He recognizes what he's being confronted with. And he has panged in his mind, in his conscience. He is panged by it. Why? Because if he has read the prophets sufficiently to say whether or not he has believed in it and given some evidence in his life that he genuinely has interest and belief in them and does not contradict Paul. He doesn't say, I don't believe that stuff. He doesn't say that. He does believe it. He has studied it. And what do the law and the prophets tell us? They tell us that we have a great need before God Almighty to be delivered from our sin. He believes this. It is simply for him now to recognize the risen Jesus as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. If you don't think Herod Agrippa, or King Agrippa knew that statement made before Herod, um, this man is a student. And I'm sure he knows the entire account of Jesus of Nazareth. King Agrippa's response in this very public setting 
is to really bring to point what Paul is inviting him to do. That really the whole account, going all the way back to the beginning of 26 and really back into chapter 25, um, the whole account came down to this. And Agrippa, verse 28, says, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. He's this close. (laughs) You see, he doesn't have to rehearse all the facts because he studied them himself. He doesn't have to rehearse the who Jesus is, he studied it himself. And it's fascinating that while Luke here and Paul use the word the way, referring to Christianity, notice what word Agrippa uses. He says, you almost, tell me, you almost convinced, persuade me to become a Christian. Now remember, that is not a phrase popularized in Judea or Jerusalem. We are 25 years, but the first few years there, in fact, I would say 10 years of that, uh, the word Christian wasn't being used. It was not used in Jerusalem. The word Christian came from a place called Antioch. Remember that? Where the followers of Christ were first called Christians was in Antioch. This guy is using a terminology that tells you he is well aware, very much in tune with what's going on in the region, and has followed it closely enough to be able to identify little Christ. You almost persuade me to become a little Messiah, a follower of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's using a term that was given to the followers in Antioch and that was not used by Paul here. Um, That's not where he was exposed to it. He's already been exposed to the ideas. He has all the information now. He has all of it pieced together. He he wanted this audience with Paul. He desperately wants almost in inviting you to push him over the edge into belief. I would love to be able to say that King Agrippa became a steadfast follower of Jesus Christ. But the fact is, people get that close and don't. And that's one of the saddest conditions of man. To believe a lot of it, to investigate it, to know and to be almost persuaded is a sad condition to be in. And we are surrounded by them as well. In our quote-unquote Christian nation, we are surrounded by people who have been exposed to the story of Christ. How could they not be, given the high holidays in our nation? They know the story of Jesus. They have been exposed, at least to some form of so-called Christianity. And for many of them, they can recount stories from the Bible, often can quote individual verses, (laughs) usually out of context and to their own ends, 
and they are continuing in unbelief. Sometimes misguided, thinking that they are following after Christ when they are really trying to earn their way to heaven. And other times, having been exposed to all that, they have flatly rejected it and now are enemies of the cross. And you will and are encountering them on a regular basis. I would love to say that no one who has ever been a member of this church would ever fall into that category, but the fact is they have and they are. We think, well, if I have enough information about it, that therefore I will be steadfast and immovable in it. And that is not a correlation that you should make in your mind. The knowledge of does not equal the following of. I think it's pretty much a generally understood knowledge of what tobacco does to your body. Yes? Is it pretty widely understood what it does to your lungs? Have you guys seen pictures of healthy lungs and tobacco lungs? Have we seen enough of that to have a general knowledge in our society of what it does to your lungs? Has that stopped everyone from smoking? That knowledge? No. Sadly, even with that knowledge, people don't follow after that knowledge and make decisions in their life in accordance with that truth. And so it is in Christianity. There are many who have a lot of knowledge about it, who living their lives in, in explicit disregard to that knowledge. And you're going to encounter them. They're going to say words, well, I tried that. It didn't work for me. They're going to say, well, I was raised that way, but that's not what I believe. They're going to say things like that. And they're going to be in this category, and our responsibility is to really push that button well, how much of it do you disbelieve? What do you believe? You believe the prophets? Okay, so you believe the prophets. So it's really about whether you want to accept Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophets or not. And that really was the issue with King Agrippa. It was boiling it down to that one thing. Is this the one I want to trust in? And then there's the requisite life that goes along with trusting in Jesus Christ. It's not just a sent information. Agrippa had all the information. When Paul says you are an expert in these matters, he wasn't just flattering Agrippa. This was true. And Agrippa is now being confronted with, okay, you believe the prophets, and he doesn't even let Paul get to the next question. He says, you almost persuade me to become a little Messiah. You almost persuade me to become a follower of the way a Christian. And Paul, as we are, is responding with a sense of sadness with the fact that, why is it just almost? Why aren't you fully persuaded? A sadness that says, I would to God that you would, and not only you, but everyone here. 
that they would all become followers of Christ, of the way. Oh, that is Paul's heart. And that is our longing. And we might look at this and, and the outcome, we see that Agrippa and Festus, of course, confer and Agrippa lets Festus know there is no, no there is, this guy is guilty of nothing of what he's been charged with. Um, this is something I've studied out and Christ, Jesus, if Jesus is the Christ, then he is a fulfillment of Judaism and not an opposition to Judaism. And there's no way that this guy is guilty of what they are accusing him of. He's certainly not an enemy of the state um, and he needs to be set free, but he's appealed to Caesar. So Agrippa is certainly not Paul's enemy. But Paul's declaration here is a haunting statement. It's as haunting as King Agrippa's response. I'm almost persuaded. And Paul's statement, oh, I would to God, you might become as I am. Oh, if only you would. If only you would. Not just mental assent and agreement to the information that you have gathered yourself, but I would that you would surrender yourself to it as I have and follow after Christ. And yes, it's going to radically transform your life. And if that is too frightening for you, then you need to re- look further into who the God of the Scriptures really are. Is, sorry. Who the God of the Scriptures is. Oh, please investigate further that you might give yourself and in fact, not only you, but everyone here. And Agrippa has not contradicted Paul at all. But neither has he committed himself to the way. And these people that we encounter, we will tend to say, oh, they're good guys. We might even be ready to call them Christians because of their familiarity, because of their the integrity of their interest and and research of the matter. We might be willing to call them that because of their history or their church attendance. But Paul is here saying that you still aren't as I am. You are still not a follower of the way. And let us not bring confusion into the minds of those people. Let there be a delineation between a follower of Christ and one who has all the information but hasn't committed themselves to it. Oh, let us be able to distinguish them ourselves and then to communicate that distinction with them. Yes, you believe the prophets. You believe in God. And I hear, I believe in God. I said, well, I'm pretty sure the Bible says the demons all believe in God. Satan believes in God. Right? It's not enough. Oh, that we would be straightforward in just calling the question. By what merit do you claim heaven? By what merit do you claim heaven? I don't claim it at all. Okay, then you're a lost person. By what merit do you claim heaven? I go to church. I go to confession. I go to this. I do that. You're a lost person. By what merit do you claim heaven? And this is the question we ask these people. By what merit? 
Agrippa had all the information. He was interested and, and he wanted to hear Paul himself. He had investigated. He, he was, he was kind of like Herod with Christ. If he is John the Baptist, come back to life. I want him and I want him to do a miracle around me. And, and that's what Herod's interest was. And Agrippa here has all that interest, but he's not a follower of Christ. And Paul says, oh, I would that you were. I would that you were, but you're not. And let us be careful before we make the declaration, oh, you're on your way to heaven, and great to meet your brother and, or sister, and oh, it's good to meet another believer, um, because they can say they believe in God and because they celebrate Christmas and Easter. Or even go to church. The question is, by what merit do you expect to be in heaven? By what work do you expect to be in heaven? And the only answer that is truth, the only answer that is acceptable in God's sight is by the merit of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who died, was buried, rose again, ascended, and is today the mediator of my covenant with God. And it is based upon his work, his merit, that I claim heaven. And I will live as a servant of the Most High God all my days. When that is their declaration, then give them a big hug and and say, welcome to the family. And not until. Let us be careful. Well, he wants to be, I so would love to be able to say he grew up and became a believer. But I can't get past the almost, and I can't get past the Paul statement, I would to God that you would. The Bible doesn't declare that the the path is narrow until the very end of times and then it's wide. In fact, if anything, the indication is that the way grows narrower and fewer find it. And the fact is is that overwhelmingly you're going to be encountering unbelievers. Some are going to be making light of your faith and you need to be ready to confront them with truth and reason and the testimony of neighbors of others who very intelligently receive Christ as their Savior and reasonably. But we also need to be ready to confront those who have all the information, who have investigated it, who can give all the pat answers, who can quote the verses, but have never surrendered their lives Christ. And we need to be ready to differentiate ourselves from them. And if you can't do that, then I want to challenge you, are you a follower of Christ? Or just believe the information? And there is a difference. Every demon believes that Jesus rose from the dead. Because he did. Agrippa had to believe it. The, 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 
The evidence was too strong to ignore. But he didn't commit his way to it. He didn't become a follower of the way. And what we call you to here is not to just adhere to the information and, and, and gain the information and agree with the information. And that is one facet of salvation. But the fullest declaration of salvation really isn't verbal at all, but one of surrender of one's life to it. That is what it means to be a follower of the way. This is what defines me now, not just define, not just expresses one facet of my life, but it is my life. He is my life. Both now and forevermore. This is who I am. So I am not what you see. This isn't, you know, my skin color, my hair, my eyes, the titles after my name or before my name, um, the language I speak, the economy that I live under, uh, none of those things define me anymore. I'm defined singularly as a follower of Jesus Christ. When that is your testimony, then I will declare freely with you that whomever's in the Father's hand, no one can pluck him out. And you know you have everlasting life. But let us be ready to hold off on that statement until the evidence is clearly born. Lest there be unbelief in some that we call brethren and we condemn them by our silence. Paul's prayer here is, I would to God that all who hear me today would become both almost and altogether such as I am. Except for the chains. <laughs> you don't need to be in jail. But a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. And that's our calling. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the testimony of Paul. Lord, we see around us, and we can even put faces and names in our mind of people that we will encounter, we, we will this week, as we do each week, in classes, in workplaces, in neighborhoods, maybe even in our very homes, who are the Festuses and the Agrippas in our life. Lord, give us the wisdom and the grace and the strength Consistently confront them with your truth, the reasonableness of our faith, the evidence of its sureness. And then, Lord, that we might challenge them with the question. And, Lord, may our lives clearly reflect. All that we are is yours. Where we fail to do that, Lord, forgive us. And we pray that we might be able to set it right in the eyes of those who are really looking to us as their little Messiah. That we might point them more accurately in days to come to the Son of God, the Lamb 
takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.